Hello and welcome to Legal Tech Arcade with me, Rob McAdam, an independent podcast about tech-driven legal service delivery and the people and products that make it all happen. Okay, so welcome to the first uh, episode of season two of Legal Tech Arcade, the first episode of 2021. Uh, Very happy to be back. Um, slightly strange circumstances, find ourselves uh, back in back in lockdown in the UK. Um, but I think we can make up for that by having a fantastic guest on this uh, th- this time round. So I'm very pleased to uh, to be joined by Andy Wishart, Chief Product Officer at Agiloft. Andy, welcome to Legal Tech Arcade. Oh, hi, Rob. Um, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's, it's brilliant to have you on. And obviously, we worked very briefly together, didn't we, at, uh, at Thomson Reuters? Um, probably too, too short a time working together, but it's just nice to, to be having this conversation with you now, especially given, uh, given your recent move. I think it's going to be really, really interesting for people to hear some of your background and what you're hoping to, to do at Agiloft. Cool. Great. No, I'm really pleased to be here. I've enjoyed uh, listening to the first season of the podcast, so it's um, a real honor to be here with you. Awesome, yeah, and I will. I'm gonna. I'm going to kind of qualify this uh, by saying, uh, I've got three infant age girls downstairs homeschooling. I'm currently set up on a uh, an old toy kitchen uh, in my spare room, and I think you've got similar issues going on with diggers and stuff in the background. So we're going to give it our best shot. Um, I think we're br- we're pretty brave to be recording this uh, <laughs> at the current time, but let's let's give it a go. Um, so. I know you've listened to uh, some of the episodes before in the past, so uh, it's it's obvious what I'm going to ask. This is how I kick off every episode. Um, but uh, okay, were you into gaming when you were younger? What consoles did you use? Was it PCs? What games kind of stand out that you're really into? Um, yes, the answer is a resounding yes. I. I... Gaming and football were my two passions uh, growing up. Um, But you have to remember that I'm a slightly older generation. So my first gaming experience was, I think, around seven, maybe six or seven, when uh, my parents bought my brother and I a Sinclair ZX81, which was like amazing. It had 1K of memory on board. Um, but the one that we got had this awesome 16K RAM pack that went yeah. in the back to boost it. Um, and it was really sort of great for gaming. Um, uh, and uh, I, I was pretty obsessed by a lot of games on it. I, I remember things like Bomb Jack and uh, 3D Monster Maze, where you were in a... Yeah. You were in a uh, in a maze, and I thought the graphics were just so amazing that this King <laughs> yeah. Rex was almost lifelike. Um, but of course, it was really bad. But um, uh, uh, yeah, so really into gaming. ZX eighty one was the first yeah. thing. Then uh, Sinclair Spectrum, uh, and then moving on to things like Commodore Amiga when I was maybe oh, around yeah. about thirteen, fourteen. Yeah. But interestingly, I've never owned a console, so it all Have kind you not? of it all kind of sort of um, sort of stopped around sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, um, and you know I'd still play console games with friends, but mm. um, not quite as obsessive as when I was a younger kid. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a bit the same. I think we uh, I did have a PlayStation two at one point. Um, I remember getting a, an Amiga CD thirty two. Um, ages ago um and it, you know, it was just really random it like everyone else had kind of super nintendos and all this kind of stuff and i had this amiga cd32 and it was really hard to find games for it um and uh but my i remember because my dad used to work for icl which eventually became i think fujitsu um so i remember him bringing home a, a pc a 286 um and it had this game on it called captain comic um, and it was just like a really simple platform game. And I, you know, I, I, like you, I, I can remember thinking, this is, this is amazing. This is so amazing graphics. Um, and I, I looked it up the other day and I, it was just funny looking at what we deemed cutting edge, you know, decades ago compared to what we, what we get now. So definitely you should, yeah. you should look up 3d monster maze and okay. you'll just see the astounding graphics on yeah. that 16 K on that 16 K ZX eight one. Yeah, um, and of course now my you know 
my son has an Xbox and he's a big gamer. And I just cannot compete with that. Just yeah. the, the level of complexity and precision in, uh, is just astounding to watch. So I find myself just watching him now and yeah. um, marveling at how amazing games are today. Yeah. Very briefly, I, I, our girls got a Nintendo Switch for Christmas and I treated myself to The Witcher 3 um, game on, on the Switch. And uh, yeah, it's it's mind-blowing just what, what you can do with things now. Uh, particularly like games like that, open world games that, you know, literally are on a handheld. It's brilliant. Um, Cool. So uh, moving on to to more of the business end of of the podcast and kind of digging into some of your background. So, um, you know, your chief chief product officer at Agilof, relatively new role uh, that you've just just started the start of this year. Um, Were you were you always focused on a kind of a career in in technology and software in product? where did that start? What was your real kind of first exposure to to computing and software? Well, it was it was all probably kind of an, a mistake, really, um, uh, and by accident. I, I was really into chemistry at school. And okay. When when I left school, uh, it was almost certain I was going to go on to university to study chemistry. In fact, mm. I think seven of my eight choices um, were all chemistry, except for one, which was like a wild card. Uh, and in some ways, I sort of selected this option as a bit of a joke because I read the description of the course and it sounded just bizarre and futuristic. And um, <laughs> it was a joint joint degree in artificial intelligence and psychology at Edinburgh. Okay. Uh, and this was, you know, the mid-90s. Um, so it was a wild card. But then as I sort of got closer to the decision point, I thought this sounds like it could be the future and it might be really, really interesting. So I went for it and um, and I certainly didn't regret it. It was a really exciting time to mm. be learning uh, things like uh, AI and cognitive psychology. Um, you know, AI had probably not that long come out of the AI winter in the 70s and 80s. Um, yeah. And uh, it was a really exciting time. So, you know, I did... It, it wasn't like hardcore AI programming like some of the maths and the computer science joint degrees were doing. It was it, There was a lot of programming, particularly in logic programming, in, 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 uh, in uh, Prologue. Um, yeah. And then we were building some really early neural networks um, as well and doing some programming of some of the robots that the, the department in Edinburgh had. Yeah. Um, uh, but it was it was probably uh, it was really in the summer jobs that I got more interested in in software companies. Uh, and I remember one summer getting a QA job working for a, an Adobe partner, um, and I was responsible for testing Photoshop four in German. So <laughs> the part the partner was responsible for localizing into European languages. Okay. So I spent all day just playing with Photoshop 4 in German um, and I absolutely loved it and uh, yeah. you know I was pretty good at finding bugs I was really into learning more about Photoshop and uh, it was almost like games testing or something it's mm-hmm. like the perfect job so mm-hmm. yeah that was my first exposure to a proper software company I think yeah uh, you're so you're from near Dundee as well I think there were a few few companies in that area weren't there that were quite quite exciting at the time kind of gaming companies as well so it must have been quite quite a kind of good place to to be actually and thinking about it a lot of a lot of people working in in legal tech actually at the moment that i know uh are all, are all from scotland or studied in scotland i don't know whether there's a kind of uh i don't know like a hub of of legal tech talent in scotland i don't know, i don't know whether that that is the case yeah, I'm not so sure, but certainly there is that sort of strong history with um, the games industry in, in yeah. Dundee, um, you know, Grand Theft Auto. Uh, D- Dundee is to blame for, for bringing Grand Theft Auto to the world. Um, I'm uh, glad it did. I'm yeah, glad it did. Yeah, awesome. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and, but but yeah, I think, I think there are good universities. Um, uh, there's a sort of good talent pool in Scotland. Yeah. Okay, so so traditionally, I guess you're you're best known as the uh, face of Contract Express uh, or Business Integrity, as it was known uh, in, in the early days. 
So how did that come about? How did you move from the academic side into the startup side with with business integrity? How did how did your involvement with them come about? Uh, and what did it look like kind of in the early days of, of the product as the business uh, was developing? Yeah, so I just finished up a research role in the AI department in Edinburgh, and um, uh, and I just met my wife Kim, and we were both really keen to move to London, and I I, I wanted to to join a startup and. Mm. Uh, ideally a startup in in the sort of realm of AI. And there were a few that were coming onto the scene at that time. I remember autonomy launching in in Cambridge. Um, So I put my CV up onto monster.com, which itself was probably relatively new. (laughs) Yeah, Um, uh, And an agency had got in touch with me to say that there was a law firm that was um, spinning out a new uh, startup in the tech space. Um, and uh, I learned that the, the law firm was Tarlow Lyons, which is now Blake Morgan. Mm. Um, and uh, one of the partners there, John Mahood, one of his clients was an AI-based software company in London called Logic Programming Associates. They're still around today. Clive Spencer that leads that. Mm. Um, you may have heard his or seen his VisiRule yep. solution. Yeah. Um, so they had developed... Uh, some web-based forms engine and sort of early doc generation. Uh, and John Mahood at Tarlow Lions, you know, really had a sort of vision for how this could be applied to the creation of complex uh, legal agreements. So the partners in the law firm put in some seed funding. We uh, They hired a, um, a strategy guy from IBM called Henry Steen, who joined us as chairman and... Um, secured Phil Vasey, who was the developer at Logic Program mm. Associates, to to build it. And then I came in as the sort of third, fourth um, employee. Yeah. Um, and we had the beginnings of a product. Um, but more important that, than that, we actually had the access to our first customer. They weren't a paying customer, but they were a client of the law firm. Uh, it was Standard Charter Bank mm. and their procurement team. So we were trying to help automate their procurement agreements using this very beta early version of Contract Express. Um, but, you know, it gave us sort of really good exposure into how lawyers working inside the legal and procurement function of a bank, you know, how they actually worked and what some of their challenges were. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of interesting that the, the kind of first use case wasn't actually as a, a kind of internal to the to the firm. It was actually the firm spotting an opportunity to to provide this solution to their clients into the kind of corporate legal and procurement teams. Yeah, absolutely. The firm did see this as a vehicle for you know they, they we were separate from from the firm. We were you know a separate company. We were incubated in their basement, but um, <laughs> uh, you know we. We were charged for setting the strategy and setting the product strategy as well. Um, uh, But it did help in that relationship between the law firm and its clients as well. Yeah. And what was your role in the the early stages then with with the company coming on board? I guess as a startup, you have to wear multiple hats. But what, what were the kind of main areas of responsibility for you? Yeah, I think the primary thing was being the interface between the customers and our engineer mm. and um, uh, so I played various roles from sort of helping the customers succeed with the product helping build out templates on the product as well um, but I think uh, early I was beginning to establish this a fairly technical focused role but mm. working closely with the customers yeah so so like a, a basically a product role kind of the early yeah. stages of a product role essentially it was the early stages of a product role but I just didn't have the experience to know that that's such a thing actually exists. That's what it was, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is the case, which is the case in a lot of places. Actually, you kind of you product such a it's not unusual, but it's probably a misunderstood role sometimes. Um, so I can kind of see how that would come about that you were essentially doing all the elements of a product role, but kind of wearing different kind of titles like CTO or other things. But actually, what you were doing was at its core a product management role. Yeah, absolutely. I remember. I remember years later when uh, we actually uh, had Barry Hadfield, the CTO and co-founder of Workshare, come in, and um, uh, he was running a consultancy business at the time, and he was consulting with us to help us on our product strategy. And it was probably not until that point, as I learned more about 
his experience at Workshare that, you know, it was pretty clear that, you know, I'm I'm the product lead, not the tech lead. Yeah, yeah. And and what what was the competitive landscape like at that time then? So for something like document assembly, document automation, um, were you doing something relatively distinct and unique? Were there other kind of more established players in the market? Where did you fit in early on? Well, there it was a really established market, but to begin with, we didn't actually know that we we hadn't done <laughs> our competitive intelligence. I remember going into a I mean, this is quite funny, but going into a meeting with a potential investor and we pitched um, the product yeah. and, uh, and the, the investor said, so, so how do you guys compare to hot dogs? And I think our response was maybe hot whoo. And, <laughs> yeah. and because we'd not done our sort of competitive research really early on, we thought we were the only ones there in the first few months as we'd created this product. Um, but, you know, doc, doc automation had been, Going, going on for almost as long as word processing. So we quickly learned um, uh, a lot more about hot dogs. And I think, I think we were in the early stages, we were really trying to establish a differentiation around being web-based, around right. being sort of simpler to build the templates. And I think that, you know, continued for, for, for quite some time. Yeah. So, so focusing more on the kind of the, the user experience and the, the, the UI and making it simple and intuitive and easy to build these templates and automate these documents rather than making it too much of a technical process yeah 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 absolutely and then i guess so interesting you know it's interesting to talk to someone who's kind of been there and kind of gone through that process of you know right at the start of a of a early stage startup all the way through to you know building a much more established business etc but i guess thanks to things like you know the, the the tv show silicon valley and and all these amazing kind of unicorn success stories coming out of you know, Silicon Valley, et cetera. I think founding a startup is is usually seen as a very exciting and appealing thing to do. Um, was that was that your experience? Was it was it incredibly exciting? It must have had its it must have had its challenges as well. So, you know, what what was it like? It it was really exciting, but no doubt there were there were challenges. There were some tough times. You know, it was very much hand to mouth. We mm. um, we didn't go down the path of taking on further investment. Um, it was all organically okay. strapped, and um, I, you know, after that initial seed funded, um, so it was tough at times. There is no doubt. And um, uh, but o- overall, it was a, an incredibly exciting experience. Mm. Um, uh, and probably more so as you sort of reflect and look back on, up, upon it now, um, uh, you know, I think we were we were very early into the legal tech market, and we were probably maybe too early for the market with what we were trying to do. Yeah. You know, it 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 probably did take us around about eight years to go from from those early adopters um, and crossing that chasm i guess into mm. the early majority like we our, our strategy was if we land the magic circle then the rest will follow but there's a very diff there's a big difference between the very top end of law firms um in the uk and and uh you know other parts of the market uh, mm. other um uh, parts of the market and and again big difference between the uk market and europe and and the us as mm. well so, so talk to me about some of the um some of the earlier customers that you had um you know you mentioned standard chartered um what you know what other customers were they were they law firms were they corporates what what did that look like yeah so in the early days uh, alongside um the uh, standard chartered uh, our first customers were Linklaters in 2001 and mm. then Clifford Chance in early 2002. And I think reflecting back upon that now, they were really co-development customers yeah. because our product was still in beta form and they were really helping us, really helping us with um, polishing that product and getting getting it ready for, for a firm of their size. And, you know, both, both those firms and many others uh, put a huge amount of effort into to helping us and, you know, it did lead to things like there are CC-isms in, in, <laughs> in Contract Express that are probably still there and uh, that were maybe unique to, to Clifford Chance at the time. But there was a lot of stuff that Clifford Chance 
Linklears and other firms um, uh, really helped us out with on on product development. Yeah, I, I guess it's important. It's always important to have those those key clients in the early stages. You know that you you land and you have to be a little bit more responsive to them because they're so precious and you're so privileged to have them. Um, but how important do you think kind of those early development partners are to to startups like like business integrity in the early stages and Kind of interestingly, I'm, I'm I'm always interested in this. What lessons did you learn about working with them? Because I guess the the temptation is that over time, you you want to you could quite easily become kind of a personal development team to your customers, and you want to avoid that to to help you scale. So, how do you balance getting the right input, getting the right feedback, but not not kind of focusing too heavily on a client as you as you build and grow? Yeah, it's tough. You've got to create a balance. Uh, you know, you want the focus of um, uh, only a few small number of co-development customers, but you want variety so that you're getting different perspectives from yeah. each of them. And I think, you know, we were really lucky to have that. So alongside Linklears and Clifford Chance, we also had the corporate customers. So Standard Chartered Bank from the beginning. And yeah. then soon after we got Cisco um, and th- they were providing a very different perspective into the needs for the product compared to the likes of Linklears and um, Clifford Chance. They were more focused on APIs or um, you know, okay. being able to connect to Contract Express about workflow and process. Um, so yeah, it was it was important to get a, a, a range of different perspectives in those early customers. We yeah. were really lucky. Yeah, and I know we'll come on to talk about it in a second, but I guess with someone like Cisco, I know they were so so involved in the kind of the early stages of that kind of legal operations um development that that doesn't surprise me that they were thinking bigger uh, at that time um and probably slightly more advanced than other corporate legal teams about thinking how they were going to stitch tools together and, and integrate um for a much much broader um process and workflow so now that's really interesting that they they took that took that approach um but but just on that though i guess you know one of the biggest challenges as well for for b2b um SaaS companies is building for the enterprise. You want to land those those big corporates, um, but they often have very specific requirements. Where you know for the enterprise, um, in that early stages, landing someone like a, a Microsoft or Cisco must have been you know a big deal. But how did you kind of ensure you were ready for for the enterprise? Uh, you, you know, I don't think we were ready, uh, I, but I think they helped us get ready right. really quickly. And uh, and again, they were really supportive. So Microsoft, for example, um, the legal department there, they would connect us with the office team, the office product and, and tech teams. Because around, you know, 2005, 2006, uh, Microsoft were going through a dramatic change with the office suite. Um, uh, they introduced in Office 2007 the new DocX file format. Yeah. Um, and because actually my, Microsoft would, you know, the legal team at Microsoft would have very early access to beta test in some of those products. So we need to make, we had to make sure that Contract Express was um, compatible with what was changed in, in, in the Office, um, in the Office products. Yeah. So, so we did get really good um, access to the office team and, and became sort of part of that rollout of Office 2007 and, and, and became one of the first partners to sort of leverage that open XML mm. um, that sits inside DocX. So in many ways, um, we were probably thrown in at the deep end, but um, companies like um, Microsoft and Cisco really helped uh, get us enterprise ready yeah. as well. Just just in terms of the the way in which we would deliver not just the product but the services, um, uh, it was a real moment of of growing up. And, yeah, um, yeah. So, so did you have uh, through Microsoft? You might you know might be providing it to their kind of legal function, but did they did they give you kind of better access, I guess, to their their own product teams? Did you collaborate more with with their product teams by virtue of having them as a customer? They did, yeah, and and the product teams were really fantastic at, at inviting partners in, and there were there were a few partners um, in the legal space that were part of um, part of that sort of office um, transformation that they were going through. Mm. Um, so it did give us that sort of exposure um, and uh, a help up when you know we were having challenges with you know 
rebuilding the add-in for the ribbon yeah. or or building the doc gen based around open XML. So mm-hmm. it was good good to have that connection. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, like you say, being being there at the time where you're trying to build it and kind of integrate it nicely with with Office. I guess the you know, the, the trend now seems to be, and uh, particularly driven by the pandemic and the move to to more collaborative remote working, that now the focus is on building for things like Teams. And it's just really interesting to see how you know if you were building the product now um, with, with with Microsoft Teams there, how 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 that would look, how different it might be. Um, I, yeah, I think it's um, it's so fascinating that um, we've all got kind of almost slightly different productivity stacks now, moved on from things like outlook and email into into teams and so that's where people are working and so more and more vendors are having to to build apps and plugins and make it work seamlessly with things like teams or you know other other tools like slack and you know the g suite etc yeah and i think it's incredibly exciting because it just sort of offers up a different perspective to think about the user experience yeah. and um uh and you know for for the the last two and a bit years at Thomson Reuters. I spent most of my day within Teams. Uh, since moving to Agileoft, I spent most of my day in, in Slack. Yeah. And, um, you, you know, the creation of applications that work into that real-time messaging environment, I think the opportunities are fantastic. Mm. And there are some really good apps already for the likes of Slack and Teams. Um, yeah. That just sort of transform the way users actually perform a particular function or achieve something so yeah yeah it's yeah. incredibly exciting um so you mentioned obviously like cisco and microsoft it seems like a lot of the the early stage customers were were, were large corporates again uh, cracking cracking the u.s market for for well for a lot of vendors european vendors is is notoriously difficult you know i we had that situation at, at high q we you know we, we had a had a go at Growing in the U.S. and trying to crack that U.S. market, and, and it is difficult. So, how did how did you on business integrity at the time? How did you go about attacking that U.S. market, and kind of what were your key learnings from that process? Yeah, it was really tough. So, um, you know, we tried to do that from a base here in in the U.K. and um, in the early days, we st- sent someone out, Julie Saliba, who had worked at Linklears and then joined. Mm-hmm business integrity and um, she moved out to New York to to start working with some early customers that we were um, sort of in the pilot phase yeah with both law firms and and corporates um I, it it's tough it's really tough it took time for us to build momentum um, but we we did establish that presence on the east coast and then we were also getting a lot of new customers, both law firms and corporations on, on the West Coast. And mm-hmm. we knew that we needed a stronger presence there as well. Um, and I remember it was Legal Tech New York around 2010. Um, it was, uh, we had just launched Contract Express Cloud. Okay. The cloud version of Contract Express. Um, and, and I think after a few beers that night, we'd had a good strong year the year before. And mm-hmm. um Tim Allen and Richard Newton said, we need a bigger presence on the West Coast. And I stuck my hand up saying, I'll, <laughs> I'll move to the West Coast if you two can. Um, uh, so uh, a few months later, um, I moved the family out to the Bay Area yeah. um, for three years. And that was wow. to really help sort of establish um, more of our presence out on the West Coast or the U.S. in general, mm-hmm. but, um, how, the West Coast in particular. How did that go down? Uh, you know, if I went home after a few beers... And said to my wife, "Yeah, we're moving to the West Coast. Uh, that, but it's a pretty big deal. How did uh, you know, how, how did that go?" Well, I think initially, um, probably not that well. <laughs> but then, but then, I think as we sort of thought about it more, the kids were really young. It, it felt like it was the right. It, if we were going to do it, that was now the, was the, yeah, that was, was the time, time. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and we made a great decision in that because it was fantastic. It was a fantastic experience for the family, but it was also a great learning experience for yeah. the company as well. Well, what, for you personally, what was it like? I mean, working in in on the West Coast at that time amongst you know so many exciting companies, both kind of consumer and enterprise, just must have been a an amazing experience. It was. It's really strange. It, feels like work never stops because you you know the people in your neighborhood or the parents of the kids at school 
you know, they were either in tech or biotech. Yeah. It felt like you were always on. You were always sort of, um, I don't know, you were always sort of really professionally work-focused. A lot of personal relationships sort of had a some form of connection as well in, in, in what you do. Mm. Um, it was a huge learning experience and an exciting time as, as well. You know, there were a lot of CLM vendors um, starting in the Bay Area, Selectica were just across the street and Aptis were a short yeah. drive away and Aptis were really growing rapidly mm. at that point. Salesforce was obviously growing uh, incredibly quickly as well and the App Exchange had had been well established by that point. Yeah. Um, so it was an exciting time and also sort of being there was important. We were building the contract express for Salesforce app for the app exchange. So being out on the West coast gave us that sort of closer connection to Salesforce's partners as well. Yeah. And I guess, you know, as well, some of your customers at the time were, would have had lawyers that were probably part of the kind of the clock movement that was kind of emerging as well. And that kind of legal operations space. So did, do you feel like being there on the West coast at the same time as that, that kind of community starting to build, did that, did that benefit um, the company, do you think? Oh, for sure, definitely. And, you know, prior to Clock actually starting, there were still some, uh, you know, really interesting things locally within the Bay Area, like the ACC chapter yeah. in the Bay Area. There was the Silicon Valley Association of General Counsel, and their annual meetings were always a sort of good opportunity to mm. connect with other, um, you know, other AGCs and, and the beginnings of legal ops within, uh, you know, particularly the tech companies in the Bay Area as yeah. well, where there was a real focus on legal operations. Mm. So having having worked, you know, in the US, having worked in, in the UK, um, what do you think, um, you know, what are the main differences? What do, what do the UK and European vendors need to understand about the US market if they're looking to kind of step over there and, and try and succeed? Are there differences and, and you know, how, how best should vendors think about it and approach it? There are for sure differences. You know, if I think about our um, experience on the law firm side with a knowledge management tool, like a doco tool, there are differences in approach and focus on knowledge production in the UK versus mm. the US. I, I think that's changing and has changed and there are, uh, I, there is a much greater focus on on um, knowledge management uh, within U.S. firms. Yeah. Um, but I think uh, back then, uh, early on, it was sort of the more on the knowledge management sort of self-service systems, like having those search systems in place that would help you discover the best precedent or best example of that particular document to use as a as a starting point mm -hmm. um, uh, so there there are certainly differences in approach and perspective between uk and us firms but but i think that's changing um, for sure yeah and then on the corporate side i mean there's just so many large corporations in the us and 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 large legal departments within those large corporations and i think because of that that's where we've seen a sort of greater maturity in the role of legal operations. That's not to say that that isn't happening in Europe or the UK. Um, there's just a lot more people on, on in that particular type of role. Yeah, um, I agree. And I think, you know, my experience with the likes of Cisco back even early in 2003, 2004, you know, they had their own legal IT function. This was these were developers that were helped that were focusing on helping stitching together solutions from vendors or inbuilt solutions together for um uh, for their legal operations mm -hmm. so i you know i think there were some trailblazers like that yeah um, definitely yeah okay so kind of moving on from your experience in the us probably you know returning back to the, the uk so business integrity i think was sold to thomson reuters in 2015 so what were the main? What was the main driver behind that sale, Thomson Reuters? Um, what benefits did you feel that, that that acquisition was going to bring for the for the products and the business? Yeah, I think we were we were always of the opinion that if you could combine 
dock auto technology with content, then you could open up a huge amount of new opportunities, yeah. particularly with firms or legal departments that didn't have the resources or the expertise to go about building templates. Mm. And, and we'd started down a path there. We had established the partnership with Lexis um, and helped build out the dock auto within the Lexis PSL solution. Um, in the UK and helping uh, be a part of that Lexus draft launch. I, and I always thought it would probably be Lexus that we end up at. Um, but uh, as it would be, um, that wasn't to be the case. And um, just as we were sort of spinning down the partnership with Lexus and we'd come on the market and um, we started talking to to Thomson Reuters. And I think we all we also felt it was going to be an opportunity to give us the scale to go globally or more global than we were um, and would be a great place for our employees to end up and sort of help develop their careers as well. Yeah. But, you know, I, th- I can totally see the logic behind it and the kind of joining of, of, of the product with, with a lot of the knowledge content from, from TR as well. But, you know, no doubt there are challenges stepping into a much larger company. You know, you've got that small company culture and you move to what is essentially a, a global corporate, you know, and, and obviously I've, I've done something similar before by, by moving into TR from, from high Q. But, you know, what were, you know, what were some of the bigger challenges, um, particularly from a product perspective, kind of moving into a, into a large company? Yeah, I think, you know, product management at TR is huge and there's, mm. there's a, a lot of serious talent there. You know, you just need to look at the success and scale of things like Westlaw and Practical Law, Elite, um, even, you know, um, Legal Tracker. Yeah. Um, and I think for many of us at the beginning, I, I guess we were a little bit worried that TR would see this doc thing as just being a small thing that they had just acquired and would fold it into practical law or um uh, or maybe you know it just wouldn't get the 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 love and attention that it would need but that was the the the, the experience was the total opposite um tr became really focused on supporting our growth and and um you know supporting our teams to grow and and putting the investment in the product like yeah. the tripled investment in the product um uh, overnight and and sort of built up our, our our engineering teams to help really accelerate um, on the roadmap. So it was it was a really positive experience and and one where you know I feel like TR did a great job in in helping Contract Express grow. Yeah, no no doubt. I mean, from my experience, you're working there. You've got access to not only the kind of the content side, but you know a lot of the the, the great minds that are there to put that content together um you've got access to a, you know an amazing amazing client base as well of, of corporates and law firms uh, and like, like you say it just unlocks so much more resource that it kind of enables you to kind of fulfill those growth plans and accelerate growth harder and faster i think um certainly was my experience so I guess, uh, Andy, TR has got a pretty decent stable now of some of the, probably some of the best known legal tech tools around, things like Contract Express, HiQ, Legal Tracker, and it's got obviously the kind of the, the great knowledge content tools like Practical Law, Westlaw, etc. So as you as you move on to Agileoft and kind of look back and look ahead, you know, what's your kind of big hope for, for Contract Express and its customers kind of going forward? So, you know, I'm really confident that Contract Express has a, a strong future. Um, as I was leaving, uh, uh, the Q and the Contract Express teams had just built that fully integrated mm. native integration into Q. I think that offers some really exciting opportunities for, for Contract Express customers and for Thomson Reuters as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm confident Contract Express has a strong future. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree as well. Okay, so so moving on, one one I'm really pleased that you're on the the podcast because um, obviously we've had various different people on, um, some of which have kind of been been involved a little bit with product, but I think you're the first person that's come on that is a you know solely you know real strong product leader. So I just want to dive into product management a little bit, and I know a lot of people listening will be really interested, but I guess. Like I said, you've worn many hats over the years. You can probably be best described as that product manager at heart. Um, as we said earlier, product management is often 
kind of relatively poorly understood role. And I'd even include me in that category as well. Um, you know, I see myself sometimes as a bit of an accidental product manager, you know, doing a lot of the kind of functions of product, but sometimes not necessarily having that title. Um, and it can look very different in different organizations. But how, how do you define, how do you see product management? Well, I, I think I'm probably also an accidental product manager. Um, I, I, I think product management to me is is determining the right thing to build. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to do that, I think you need to understand your market. You know, is the market big enough? Um, you need to understand who your users are, what the problems that they are experience, experiencing. Are those problems painful enough such that if you are to create a solution to those problems, there's enough value there that they're actually going to pay for, for that. Um, so I think it's about helping creating solutions to those problems, validating and testing with, with those users around prototypes um, and, uh, um, you know, determine if there's value in that solution. Yeah. Uh, and then really determine if it's feasible to even build the thing. And um, uh, and that might be, if is it, is it feasible for the engineering team to build it? But is it feasible for the company? Does the company have... The, the business as a whole have the necessary sort of sales channels and mm. partnerships to sell the solution. So I think it's determining the right thing to build. And, you know, as you say, it's a sort of collaborative role. You're, you're working with so many different parts of the organization. Yeah. Yeah. It's an exciting role. It is. It's, it's what I enjoy most about it, actually, the fact that you can work with so many stakeholders internally and, and actually the fact that it's such a customer market facing role as well which I really enjoy the fact that, you know, you wouldn't be doing your job properly if you weren't having those conversations with customers that you weren't, you know, joining things like even sales calls just to understand, okay, what, what, are, what are the current requirements in the market? What are we hearing? What are we seeing? Um, and like you say, then kind of digesting that to try and figure out, okay, what should we build and how should we prioritize? Um, you know, I, I just love that kind of that feedback loop, that collaborative working with those teams. And then, one area of it I, I really enjoy is, is the marketing side as well and feeding in on the product marketing. I know, again, it's, it can, can be an entirely different role, but I think it's such, a, such an important element of what product management and product managers do is to essentially, if you think you've come up with the, the, the thing you should be building, you need to be telling people why it's great. And, Absolutely. Um, and I, I really enjoy doing that as well. Yeah, it is a fantastic role. Yeah. It is. No, it's, it's very enjoyable. But what does, uh, for, the, for those who aren't familiar with it, what does a typical day look like for, for kind of a product manager, a product leader? What are you doing activity-wise? Who do you work with? Uh, what does it look like? So uh, from joining Agileoft uh, a few weeks back, um, the team are really close to a new release. Um, mm. So there's a lot of work going on right now with engineering to check that we're closing in on that, that release candidate. We're getting feedback from customers on some of the new user interface designs that we, we were bringing into that um, uh, release. We're working with product marketing. So there is yeah. a distinct product market function within Agileoft. So trying to help articulate the value of that, that next release. Mm. Um, but we're also then planning for the, the one beyond that as well. We're looking at some of the ideas that have come in from customers, some of the sort of ideas that our internal teams have and um, you know we're beginning to sort of go into that planning phase for for the next release as well yeah and, and when are you going to get up in the morning and kind of put your product manager product leader hat on what 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 are you most looking forward to what's the best bit about what you do and what's the bit that you think oh no i've got to do this today and and perhaps some of the more challenging aspects of the role um, I think the most enjoyable part is seeing customers go live yeah. with something and starting to actually realize the value of, of the solution. And, and then they get excited and they want to share their success. I think that is like the pinnacle of enjoyment for, for senior product, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, generate that value. Um, what I not look forward to, um, it's a demanding role for sure and yeah. uh, and you there are a lot of interruptions and there are a lot of often deadlines as well it is a demanded role uh, i th i think it, uh, 
most people within product management would 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 say that that's the case. Yeah. Um, so I think managing time and managing expectations, those are some of the harder parts of, of the role. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you. I think the, the, the thing I look, used to look forward to most, say, taking a high queue as an example, would be the kind of client forum, the high queue forum every year, because I think it was, it, that was the, so nice to have all the customers in the same room, showing them what we'd built, but also talking about what we were going to build and just getting so much feedback and positivity around that was just so so enjoyable and i think i'd, I'd, I'd kind of share the the challenges uh, the challenge as well which you know i always find hard is so many people have got ideas for where the product should go they've they've spoken to someone or heard some insight and i for me the, ch- the challenging thing is just to kind of say no say no to people yeah you know and just say sorry we're not building that and that, that includes customers as well it's not not an easy conversation to have um but you've got to kind of be you've got to have that north star and you've got to kind of focus on that and you can't just get distracted so saying no and pushing back is is incredibly hard as well um so uh, kind of just finding on the product management piece i mean for people who want to get into product management you know someone who's been doing it for for you know many years now um what, what's the best piece of advice you could have for someone who wants to be a product manager or someone who's kind of early in their career well i think probably just obsessing about obsessing about your customers and the types of problems that they have and yeah. i think having that really solid foundation and understanding of your market and customers is really really yeah. important and then you're layering on top of that this sort of technical skills that you need as a product manager but also this sort of um skills around uh, empathy and and how to work with customers how to work with users and um uh, but I think a combination of that, you're you're definitely off to a flying mm. star, and then you know experiment rapidly, test rapidly, make mistakes, learn from those yeah. mistakes. Yeah, no, I'd agree. Okay, so I want to get on now to um, to something I'm I'm really interested to hear about, which is your move to to Agileoft. So you know you've just you've just really nicely summarised your kind of journey from uni through to the startup. To growing Contract Express to selling, selling at Thomson Reuters. So you've you're leaving a product that you've spent twenty years building, and that must have been um, difficult. So, how did you know it was the right time to move? What was the kind of driving force between uh, driving force behind moving on to to join Agileoft? Yeah, it was definitely a really tough decision. Um, I think some of the clue to the quest uh, is in the question. You know, I've I've spent twenty years with with Contract Express, so there there was a part of me that uh, that thought, well, that sounds like a nice round number, yeah. um, and uh, and a big number as well. And and I'd spent five years at, at Thomson Reuters, and I, and I knew that I would want to see Contract Express. Um, really settle into TR for it to continue to grow, and um, and and you know that had happened. So I felt like now was the right time. Uh, it just so happened it coincided with you know ex colleague Eric Laughlin becoming CEO at Agileoft, okay. and you know I'd learned a little bit more. Agileoft had definitely become on my come on my radar since mm. uh, they they got into the leader quadrant um, uh, uh, with Gartner. Um, so as I learned more about Agileoft as a company, the product, it, this just felt like too too exciting an opportunity to turn down. And, totally. Um, so a combination of something really new and exciting to get involved in, mm. and the fact that I felt you know now is probably the right time. Yeah. It just. Well, can you? Uh, it just came together. Can you tell us a little bit more about Agileoft? So I, I'm sure there'll be people that are familiar with it. Um, but for those that aren't, can you just tell us a little bit about Agileoft uh, and, and what it does and, 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 the, and the product, et cetera. And then, you know, how, why did you feel that was the kind of, that was the right place, the right challenge for you next? Yeah. So Agileoft is a end-to-end contract lifecycle management solution uh, used by corporations to, to solve their legal procurement um, and sales contracting needs. Um so it's addressing some of the inherent inefficiencies in, in the contracting process from request, creation, approval, execution, tracking obligations, reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things that 
I found out really early on is that it's super flexible and extensible. Um, and I think it, it, it really sort of fits into that sweet spot where there are complex contracting processes. Um, and, uh, and I think that's evidence from, you know, some of the, the, the verticals where Agiloft has had a lot of success uh, in pharmaceutical and, and yeah. other highly regulated industries. Um, but it's got this extensible, flexible, um, no-code platform capabilities and, uh, you know, for extending new data stores or workflows or creating custom visualizations or custom experiences for users. So yeah. um, that enables customers to create adjacent capabilities uh, around their CLM solution. So that might be how they're responding to tenders or RFIs or RFPs um, and actually gives us an opportunity, Agile, to, to um, you know, productize these complementary sort of more commercial focused workflows that are complementary to CLM. Mm. I, yeah, I love it. I, I love anything where, where it's flexible, configurable, no code. That's That ticks the boxes for me. I just love stuff like that. Um, I just find it so enjoyable to work with with products uh, I, like that. I totally agree. It feels a little bit like I've got a new toy. Exactly. Sort of, <laughs> yeah. You know, takes me back to Photoshop Four in German and just playing with everything. <laughs> you know, I just want to learn more and more about this this platform. No, exactly. And I guess you know, you, with Contract Express, there was the it, it was flexible, it was configurable, etc. But and it was often used as an element of that kind of contract lifecycle in terms of drafting. Yeah, sure. But it's so exciting now, I guess, to be part of the Agileoff platform, which is going further and kind of moving beyond drafting and is tackling more of that that contract lifecycle in that same kind of flexible configurable way must just be a really you know exciting challenge it is absolutely yeah yeah and so i, I guess there are some big names in in contract lifecycle management you mentioned aptus earlier and isertis um and there, and interestingly there's a lot of, kind of smaller entrants now market entrants that are looking at elements of the contracting process um, or even contract lifecycle as a whole. So there's there's lots of um, you know there's lots of players in this space, and you've got Salesforce that are starting to dip their toe into legal as well. So where do you see kind of agile off fitting in, and 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 perhaps more particularly, where do you think contract lifecycle management is is going to develop and go in the next next few years? Yeah, I think you know, like I mentioned earlier, there's no doubt in my mind that the sort of sweet spot for enterprise CLM solutions like Agileoft and, and the others that you mentioned is is on customers with those more complex contracting needs. Yeah. Um, and that complexity can come through the type of industry they're in or the size of the organization, whether they've got global operations that result in more complexity in their contracting. Um, but I think the the power of the 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 strength of the platform, the extensibility, that customize uh, customization within the platform sort of lends itself to solving uh, more of those um, complex needs. Mm. I think um, from my from my experience as well, uh, you know, when we were talking at High Q, we talked to corporate clients um, about uh, their processes and their workflows. Um, we would always kind of say, you know, how how are you doing it now? How does the approval process need to work? How do, how do you need to gather the data? Um, how do you need to report? And actually, the answers every single time were different um there were obviously consistencies obviously similarities between things but there was no one size fits all when it comes to kind of contract life cycle management and so i think again that's the reason why tools like agileoff that are flexible and configurable are so important because you can't crowbar a tool in and say actually your process now needs to fit to our tool it's the other way around it's saying how can our how can our tool form around what you do and actually make that process better yeah, I think that's right. And I'm sure you're going to agree with what I'm about to say next, because, you know, we work together on sort of some of the ideas. I think that's right. But also, um, corporate legal departments are looking for a really strong starting point. Yeah, right. They want that off out of the box configurability, whether that's configurability on the definition of what, you know, the contract record will look like, or the typical types of fields that you might be collecting for a master services agreement, or at least a starting point around the workflows for approvals yeah. of these types of agreements. So I think customers are looking for a strong starting point, but with the flexibility in order 
um, to customize for their own workflows. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's that it's almost like a precedent document and a lawyer who says, yeah, I know I need to draft this document, but I'm not going to sit down with a blank piece of paper and do it. I just need something to work from. And it'll probably look very different eventually. And I think it's the same thing with workflows and processes now um, and, and, and tools. People are looking for templates. Um, you know, that's why it was yeah. being that's why it was being developed out at uh, at uh, at HiQ, and you know, a lot of other vendors now are making sure there are templates for for documents, for processes, for dashboards, for workflows. Just so to say, here's something. It, it probably isn't 100% what you need, but it's going to save you a lot of time if you can just tweak and adapt it rather than start from scratch. Yeah, and and our templates are a really big focus for us at, at Agileoft right now for this release that's coming up and and also, you know, on our roadmap over the next year, mm, mm. which is great because you can develop those templates independent from the core platform updates as well. Yeah, but what, what area, you know, obviously templating is important, but what other areas of that contract lifecycle do you think has been perhaps traditionally underserved? You know, is there drafting with tools like, a contract express has obviously been been tackled are there any other areas of that contract lifecycle that just uh, have been struggling for 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 improvement through the use of uh, of a tool like agilov yeah I, I i wonder whether there's something sort of more fundamental that's that needs to change in our thinking around the contracting process like we still sort of look at the contracting process through the lens of the main practitioners we are dealing with those contracts which are the lawyers like the the, the contract is the document mm. and the contract is more than the document the contract is a representation of a relationship between two companies it's a it contains uh, data it contains facts it contains rules and obligations it's a representation of that relationship it's more than just the document um, and i think probably for the next phase of um, uh, innovation within CLM. It, it's probably looking at the impact of that relationship, not just within the system of record within the CLM solution, but the impact that those data points have on the relationships between those two organizations and how that is represented more widely across the enterprise in other systems mm. uh, that need to understand some of those relationships and some of those obligations within the contract. Yeah, it's really, it is actually, that's a really interesting concept, that kind of, that point around a contract, what most people think of as a contract. So, you know, a, a Microsoft Word document or a PDF is a representation of an agreement. And that's, yeah. you know, that's what it is. That actual physical thing, that file is a representation of the agreement. But the rel- the important thing is what that agreement is, both in terms of the risk and the value uh, and how you can make that more accessible to to the people within a business that actually need to know that information, so they don't have to pick through pages and pages. And I think that's why, um, you know, redefining the way contracts are, are perhaps created, or redefining the way contracts are uh, visualized with you know tools like StructureFlow and and those guys, you know, I think is really interesting because we've almost just been kind of plodding along, thinking oh, contracts are contract is a a big document pages full of clauses and yeah okay traditionally it has been but i think it can be it can be a little bit more now and i think we could do it in a different way uh in terms of creating those those contracts and and then like i say visualizing them and and uh making the information within it and within those agreements more accessible i i agree it will be a journey right yeah. you know if you think about the sort of 20 years to get to a point where doc generation doc automation <laughs> yeah, has become the norm it's um uh, and and that's a starting point that's a, a point whereby you are, are actually structuring the underlying data that's used to produce that document i mm. think this is going beyond that into the as the contract is live exactly uh, yep yeah. can, can you work on a document yeah i think that's the we've spoken about it before on the, on the podcast about the, the doc auto tools are great. You know, it gets a draft, but then it goes into that kind of, it goes offline, out of the system into negotiation and you lose all that great insight. So I think keeping keeping the agreement and working on the agreement live within a system and you know, visualizing progress, data, issues, risks, bringing in knowledge is just, um, 
that's you know that that's got to be the direction of travel and that, you know that's my biggest hope for for some of these contract lifecycle management uh, systems like Agileoft is that um they could they can support that entire process but at the same time remaining flexible and and interoperable as well and making sure that you're not breaking that workflow um and and it works with the tools that the stakeholders in the business also work with like like salesforce and other you know, uh, and and the Microsoft stack. Going back to your original point about uh, you know Contract Express in the early stages, just making sure things can work with with Teams and and other things as well. So, yeah, yeah I mean that's that's really really interesting. But just you know, I know it's a bit of a a, a tricky word, a tricky topic to to touch on. Uh, but has there been too much focused on things like AI in, in contract lifecycle management? Um, has has the focus on that kind of detracted from? Perhaps other areas of opportunity and and areas for for driving efficiency. Gosh, that is a good question. Um, possibly, um, I I think I think there is there is certainly a maturing of the use and well understood approach to how um, AI could be used to help tackle problems like getting data out of uh, pre existing agreements or. Uh, assessing perhaps some patterns for the evidence of risk within those those mm-hmm. agreements, and you know those are capabilities that Agileoft have been refining for the past few years, and and many other CLM solutions uh, also tackle that. I'm I'm not so sure if if uh, that has been to the detriment of other areas where um there are bigger opportunities for efficiencies being missed i i suspect there has been an element of um in most in some in some clm vendors of we must get some ai capabilities but we're not quite sure whether these are really solving the most important problems for our customers right now mm. Um, and I think that's as a product manager, that's something that's got to be at the forefront of your mind. You know, are you going after the biggest opportunities to help solve um, customers' most pressing problems that they, with a solution, will value the most? Yeah, and it really shouldn't matter what the underlying technology is that that is um, uh, is helping address or or pro- provide that solution. Mm. Yeah, my my yeah my very high level assessment of it is that it's been addressed to on things like clause extraction um and that that tells you what but it doesn't tell you so what and i i think that's where i think things need to develop is that ai needs to be directed more at delivering up knowledge and insight and analyzing and layering data to to produce more insightful results that that are actionable and allow people to take action on the basis of those insights rather than just say um Here's here's your data stru- in a, in a structured way. We've extracted these things in a contract. Here you go. You can manage it now. It's mo- managing it is about making the right decisions and knowing uh, knowing where the risks are and where the value opportunities lie. And that I think it's using intelligence to deliver up that is is what I'm most excited about in that kind of contracting process. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it's horizontal as well. Like the same applies in other areas like matter management and e-billing yes. for, for you know yeah. you guys at Busyland. Um, it is horizontal. Uh, and I think that is the next stage. If you look even at um, the capabilities within Microsoft itself, like insights within Outlook or Microsoft Delve, those are all about bringing insights to the user in order to help them to decide what's important and what's next what they should be focusing on yeah uh, and i think that's probably you're right that's that's probably the next area of focus in in legal tech as well yeah well, listen andy I, I i as usual on these episodes i could go on talking to my guests for for hours and hours and hours um we we've both got jobs though so we kind of got to yes. go and, and we, we've, we've both just started new roles as well so we need to uh, to make sure we're actually doing what we're asked to do so um you know that's been absolutely fascinating you know i've, I've known you for for you know several years um but to, to hear that story from the start you know all the way back to the ai and psychology all the way through you know the, the startup world and and business integrity and contract express and and selling to Thomson Reuters, and then what you're doing now, you know, at Agileoft and that contract lifecycle management space, which is just so exciting and relevant right now. Just hearing that journey uh, in product management has just been brilliant. So, thank you, uh, you know, thank you for coming on. I hope you enjoyed. I hope you enjoyed the experience Aww. of sharing it. 
I absolutely did. Thank you so much for having me on, Rob. It was really enjoyable, and I hope the listeners find it uh, a little equally bit enjoyable. enjoyable. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, so, thanks very much. No, no problem at all. And and hopefully, at some point this year, when this is all all kind of settling down, uh, we'll actually get a chance to, to to have a beer and catch up properly. But um, I look forward. To yeah, that. no, it'll be good. And for everyone listening, um, thanks for joining. Um, the next episode of the Legal Tech Arcade Podcast will be out very soon. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of the Legal Tech Arcade podcast. If you enjoyed the show, then please go ahead and subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you next time.